with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Well, it is the virtual Buzz Eisenberg um, coming to you uh, via Skype from the top of Ashfield Mountain because yesterday Dan had to uh, Dan had to hold down the fort because I got a cold. Uh, it's only a cold. It's the, the old-fashioned kind of viruses which we used to like. But, Dan, thanks for holding down the fort yesterday. Anytime, Buzz. I love holding forts. You know me. <laughs> Dan, as a, you are an alum of UMass Boston. I, I think we have a dean from UMass Boston who's going to be on our first segment today. Yeah, I am. I'm excited about the conversation. Me too. Um, what... What we're talking about today is democracy. In the first half, um, I'm really excited about hearing uh, more about this piece that was co-authored by uh, this region's beloved GCC president, retired GCC president Bob Pira, and Dean Tara Parker from uh, UMass Boston. She's an, a specialist in higher education. Her research focuses on race and equity and success in higher education. And they have written a book called The Communities College, The Communities Possessive College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development and Success. I'm going to talk to them in a moment, but I wanted to tell you to hold on. Democracy is a theme today. And in the second portion of the program, we're going to be talking about the case you've probably read about and you may or may not have gotten into the weeds yet. Um, and that is the case out of North Carolina called Moore versus Harper, which was argued before the U.S. Supreme Court on Wednesday. Uh, is there uh, any validity to the independent state legislature theory? Democracy really is imperiled by this case. If it goes the wrong way, it means that people uh, who are in state legislatures will have complete control, unreviewable by any court, um, of uh, redistricting. And that means that you can, those little squirmy uh, drawings that end up districts in order to disenfranchise um, usually people of color, usually poverty, etc. So we're going to talk about that in the second half. But in the first half, Bob Pura, it is always so nice to hear your voice. Well, Buzza, uh, it's always good to be invited. So, uh, both Tara and I thank you for that. I'm sorry to hear that you were not feeling well, uh, but uh, it's good to know that uh, it was just a cold. Is that right? That's right. It was just just a cold. It's um, we you know viruses have taken over, but this is just the good old fashioned kind. <laughs> so it's fine, and I am on the mend. So well, so I, let's I, talk I about your book. You. Your book, yep, Bob. Yep. The, the Communities College, The Pursuit of yep. Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. Can you yep. uh, give us a summary of what it's about? Sure. So um, one of the key principles uh, of our book, The Communities College, is that democracy can never be realized in a separate and an equitable society. It is the outcome of our nation's collective commitment to providing excellent education for all. Um, we, we, we believe that education at its best does not occur behind an ivy wall separate from the realities of everyday life. Rather, 
education must be an integrated fiber in the tapestry of community. Um, our nation's community colleges provide opportunity and hope for over 5 million students, their families, and the for the communities they serve. So the work of the faculty and staff of the 1,400 or so community colleges is not only to prepare students for the workforce or to transfer, uh, but also uh, their collective purpose is to prepare students for active and engaged citizenship. Um, so the uh, they truly understand, the faculty and staff truly understand that the outcome of a strong education is a stronger democracy. Uh, John Dewey gave a speech in October 1902 at a National Education Association conference in Chicago about the importance of schools being the social center of a community. It was a significant and compelling talk. Uh, and it could have been presented today, its relevance as current to the challenges of 2022 as, uh, as it was in 1902. Uh, Dewey tells the crowd of educators, and this is a quote, the pressing thing, the significant thing, is really to make the, the school, to make education a social center that is a matter of practice, not of theory, to bring it completely into the current of social life. And then he concludes his speech that day uh, by stating that we may say that the conception of the school as a social center is born of the entire democratic movement. And later he writes, and again a quote, democracy must begin at home, and its home is the neighborly community. In other words, Buzz, democracy's home is community, and education is the front door. Without strong communities, therefore, uh, a nation is built on a house of cards. Education must be a key stakeholder, strengthening the communities of America. Access to a college degree provides the pathway to a better life for students and their families. Communities across this nation are just as dependent on those colleges to provide the engaged and educated citizenry as they are a workforce needed for a sustainable future. Hmm. Uh, Dean Tara Parker of UMass Boston, you, I was reading about your um, credentials, very impressive, um, and the influence of public policy on developmental education is an important part of what your research has been. How did, how did you bring um, the community college, as Bob just described it, um, into the fold with, along with economic development and success. Why are those wrapped in to your book? Well, in the uh, book, we talk about all the ways that uh, the community colleges really fill the needs that Bob talked about. Uh, we talk about the hopes and the dreams of and for community colleges. Um, and at the same time, challenging community colleges to go further in meeting those needs in terms of um, academic development and also um, in terms of student success. So um, for any leader or any community college to be successful, we also recognize that they must be adequately supported. Um, and yet community colleges remain the least resourced and the least funded institutions uh, in the United States. And really, all of that uh, calls our entire democracy 
and the purpose of our nation's community colleges into question. Since uh, they first yeah. opened their doors, go ahead. No, you go ahead. I'm, okay. Uh, <laughs> so, since, because we're uh, both virtual since, here, it, it, it's, uh, <laughs> there's going to be interruptions. Please. Yep. Um, since they first opened their doors, community colleges have been asked to do really the impossible. We're asking them to promote American ideals of democracy, opportunity, and social mobility. Um, and we've done so even at times when our federal government turned its back on these very principles. So indeed, the American creed of democracy is it's never held true for millions of Americans of African, Asian, Latin American, and or indigenous descent. And these are the same populations that are still today too often disenfranchised by our state and federal governments. And these are the same populations that make up the majority of community college students. In fact, community colleges enroll 41% of all undergraduates. And more than that, they graduate, uh, or I should say nearly half of all students go on to complete a four-year degree once attended a community college. So while we're talking about uh, increasing unaffordability, and we're talking about economic growth and stagnation, and we're talking about chronic racial conflict and injustices, it's uh, more important than ever for us to talk about the role of community colleges. Mm. In, in, in this book, I had, I had the honor of visiting um, uh, five colleges uh, uh, for the book. Uh, we, we started out in rural Connors State College in Warner, Oklahoma, and had the opportunity to visit with them. Uh, the second visit was to uh, Ostas Community College in the South Bronx uh, to, to be able to describe and tell the story of an urban uh, community college. And then uh, from there out, um, the, the um, the pandemic began, and so the, the three that followed were all uh, virtual. We had to do all of those uh, visits um, on, on Zoom. And so uh, we, we, the first of those was Grand Rapids Community College in the heart of uh, the Michigan and Grand Rapids, and then um, to uh, the Navajo Nation's Diné College in Cizale, uh, Arizona, and then on to Berkeley City College in Berkeley, California, which is interestingly located uh, right in the economic center of the community, uh, halfway, literally halfway between the public school um, and the University of California, Berkeley. So we learned a great deal from the leaders, the faculty, the staff, the students of those colleges. Um, and we also write about our own experiences and what we learned from the all the good people at uh, GCC and UMass Boston, um, uh, many of uh, the current leaders of the community colleges of, of New England are graduates of UMB. And so um, uh, a lot of uh, those experiences uh, found their way into the book. So we hope to talk about some of the things that uh, those folks have in, in common and, and what we've learned from them. Well, let, let me just follow up on that. Uh, it sounds like from what you just described, these are uh, widely disparate geographic regions and uh, the size of these institutions vary and some are urban and some are rural. And it sounds like they were varied racially and ethnically. Did, uh, did they all have the same challenges or were they unique as to each other? Well, well uh, I would say that they're, um, 
there are as many similarities as differences. What I mean by that is they're all reflections of the communities they serve. And so um, uh, Austis Community College in the South Bronx, which was started uh, uh, by a group of Puerto Rican um, citizens of the South Bronx that said, hey, we want we want a, college, a community college in, in our community. And, and that's the same experience that the folks in Connors uh, Connor State, uh, the people in Werner, Oklahoma, which is about an hour and a half outside of Tulsa, very rural community, said, hey, we want a community college in, in our community. And the same is true in Grand Rapids. And, you know, you know the history of Greenfield Community College. And so Berkeley City College is similar. And uh, the, I, I have to say one of the more um, um, intriguing, interesting, and um I would say the, the one of the visits that touched my heart the most was going and talking with the people at Diné College, uh, the Navajo Nations uh, Community College. And so uh, many of the students that walk through their doors are very similar in terms of the, the oppression that they face, the challenges they face, uh, whether it be based on economics or, or race um, or family issues or uh, but their differences uh, are based upon uh, their communities as well. So um, uh, a great deal of similarity, but also uh, unique, uniquely framed around the needs and the, and the uh, service to the, those communities uh, across the country. And we did want to be very geographically diverse, both. Um, Tara, be, uh, we're going to have to take a break in a couple of minutes, but I, I wanted to ask you uh, about the uh, proposal that Dr. the First Lady, Dr. Joe Biden and the President and many others were behind um, uh, about free community college. Were you a supporter of that? I think it's a dumb question, but were you? And if so, could you explain why? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yes, um, we, I just mentioned, you know, people are concerned about the cost and um, the community college really serves so many uh, needs in our communities. So why wouldn't we uh, provide support for them uh, to go to college uh, and pay for those uh, years that they're in the community college for uh, uh, without cost to them? Uh, community colleges... Um, they serve 80% of our first responders, uh, half of all our nurses, and half of our new healthcare workers are coming from uh, community colleges. So uh, I'm all for it. I'm all for it too. Buzz, we're going to take a Buzz, break. I, we're going to talk a minute about this book that is available um, to you. It's the Communities College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. There was a paper delivered to the American Association of Colleges and Universities. We're going to talk about that right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. The cook the lunch ready to sell. You're lucky if you can find a seat. You're fortunate if you have time to eat. Back in the classroom, open your books. Keep it, the teacher don't know how mean she looks. Soon as three o'clock rolls around, 
When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 1015, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. At PV Squared Solar, we live by our mission, energizing a brighter future for people and planet. This year, we are celebrating our 20th anniversary. 20 years of designing, building, and maintaining quality solar. 20 years of relationships founded on trust and clean energy. 20 years of powerful cooperation. Thank you for the partnerships along the way, and we look forward to serving this community for 20 years more. Happy birthday, PV Squared! Learn more at pvsquared.coop. Fred gets on his bike in Ashfield and starts pedaling. A few miles later, soap. Wait, what? When Fred pedals, it turns the soap paddle. Fred's soap is called Just Soap, the soap with a story. So many things at the Atlas Farm store have a story, like Divine Roots Lavender Face Cream. It's luminescent, a woman commented on Divine Roots Etsy page. This time of year, the Atlas Farm store is the Atlas Farm store and gift shop. So many things made here, like pedal-powered Just Soap and luscious lavender face cream. Forbes Library is Northampton's public library with an amazing circulating collection of over 325,000 items, including bestsellers, recent releases, tons of movies, large print books, ebooks, audiobooks, and an extensive collection for kids and teens featuring board books, picture books, chapter books, and graphic novels. The library even has musical instruments that you can borrow. You can search the library's catalog online at ForbesLibrary.org, and while you're there, you can request a card and place items on hold. The library's website is also a great place to find out about upcoming programs and events which are always free and open to the public. We have story times, book clubs for kids, teens, and adults, poetry discussions, film discussions, author talks, concerts, movies for grown-ups, and so much more. Visit ForbesLibrary.org for more information and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram to keep up with all the latest happenings. It's your library. Make the most of it. Want to make a difference in a big way? Nearly 200 children in Hampshire County are on a waiting list to be matched with adult mentors called Bigs. Children who are matched with mentors through Big Brothers, Big Sisters of Hampshire County do better in school, report higher self-confidence, and have better relationships with peers. Start something. Call 413-259-3345 and volunteer or donate to Big Brothers Big Sisters of Hampshire County. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. I am just so interested in what our guest, uh, former GCC President Bob Pura, and Dean Tara Parker of UMass Boston have written about in their book, The Community's Possessive College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development and Success. And really when, when I read um, some early chapters uh, as this book was being developed, it rang so important to me because I've made my, my entire adult life, my focus has been about democracy and education. And um, I believe, so fervently with what this book is doing. You are going to be doing a reading um, here in Northampton, correct, Bob? Yes, yeah, so uh, Sunday at 
2 o'clock uh, at the parlor room in Northampton, Jim Olson's The Parlor Room, and um, Carolyn Gear and the International Language Institute have invited us to uh, to do a reading. Um, uh, they're doing such great work at ILI, uh, Carolyn, and all the fac- all the teachers, the staff, the faculty there. Um, a wonderful board, uh, and uh, I have the privilege of being on their board. So they've invited us uh, to come out, and I'll be doing. Um, um, We'll, we'll be doing some reading there. And uh, it sounds like it's really worth attending. Um, folks, pay attention. Two o'clock on Sunday at the parlor room. Bob, I just wanted to ask, we used to always just rely on K-12, right? Or first through 12, maybe. And that that was an adequate, considered to be an adequate education um, uh, to qualify people for the job market. Why isn't that still the case? Well, well, I think it's important to really uh, uh, notice that it's it's no longer the case. And, and there was a time in this country where you can get a good job with family sustaining wages uh, after 12 years of education, and uh, they people were prepared after 12 years uh, with the knowledge and the skills necessary to be an engaged citizen and and to get a good job at good wages and and just. Because of technology and lots of other factors, um, 12, 12 years is just not enough time any longer for uh, the teachers in, in, in education to equip students with the knowledge and skills needed. And so uh, that, for me, is yet another compelling reason why community colleges add two more years uh, of that development um, so that people can uh, start out in the direction uh, uh, that they, they want in terms of career, in terms of life, in terms of civic engagement, uh, I just think the two years is, uh, is, uh, has, has become more essential uh, in, in the same way that 12 years used to be sufficient. I, think, I, I don't think it's uh, enough time any longer. Um, Tara Parker, have you found at UMass Boston that, I mean, you, your scholarship has involved public policy. Um, have you found that those students that come to you after having uh, experienced community college uh, education are, are more prepared um, than those that haven't? Um, actually, I don't know if they're necessarily more prepared. They're certainly not less prepared. But we have seen uh, recently some data that show that students who come from the community college um, are retained better and often have higher grades. So that's something um, that we have seen here at UMass Boston. The other thing that I, that I um, read about your research about race and equity and success, uh, it seems just so well to dovetail into this, this notion of the importance of a community college education because mm-hmm. it's a great it's a great equalizer, isn't it? That's <laughs> that's the idea. Um, but unfortunately, it's not the case in part because um, community colleges haven't been supported at the um, rate they need to. They get a fraction of what uh, four-year institutions get in terms of uh, state appropriations. And unlike other institutions, they rely much more heavily on their state appropriation um, because they need to also maintain affordability. So 33% of their um, budget is um, from the state. 
Um, and at the same time, community colleges have almost 12 million students who are enrolled in community colleges for job training, increasing skills. Uh, many of them transfer to a uh, baccalaureate degree. And we're also talking about uh, half of all undergraduates of color enrolling in community colleges. More than half of all Latinx and Native American undergraduate students are enrolled in community colleges. Nearly 40% of black, Asian, uh, and white undergraduates are enrolled in community colleges. Uh, so more and more, <laughs> they are uh, critical. I mentioned the uh, first responders and the role that community colleges play in our workforce development and our uh, economies. Um, and yet uh, they are the least resourced of all the uh, higher ed sectors. Indeed. Uh, Bob, I don't, because you are a president of community college, I want to throw this question to you. It, it's difficult to talk about community colleges uh, these days without talking about the um, lack of enrollment we've been experiencing in, in, in recent years. And people have submitted all kinds of theories to explain it. Um, Number one, do you have a theory? And number two, how does that dovetail with the importance of of the thesis that you're developing in this book? Well, uh, a couple things. Um, I think it's important to note that as uh, the numbers of students of color, uh, the numbers of the, as community college uh, student dem demographics be became increasingly more diverse, uh, the budgets. Uh, went in the opposite direction. That is, you could see uh, the number of students of color growing in the community colleges, and you could see uh, uh, budgets uh, in, around the country, state budgets, declining. And so uh, I think it's Georgetown did the study, but uh, some, some of the, um, uh, the studies out there are pretty clear that it, it almost parallels uh, each other. And so I know that community colleges, um, uh, are, I think demographics is a part of it. Just the number of uh, graduates of high schools uh, are less. I also think the economy has had an impact. Um, the, the pandemic had a, a, a most significant impact. Um, you know, it, it was like a, a flash of lightning uh, that, that that uh, put a, a spotlight on um, all the things that were very good and all the things that were very challenging to families, to communities, to colleges, uh, to our institutions, and to uh, uh, understand that moment as it sort of sped up uh, all those challenges and uh, as well as the, the, the ways to respond to it. Uh, I think that's part of what uh, the decline in enrollment is about. I also see um, because of competition, I think there are a lot of institutions around the country uh, that are four-year institutions, baccalaureate granting institutions that are um, uh, feeling challenged by those same demographics. And so um, maybe it is because of the uh, economic uh, challenge and the demographic challenge that some of those institutions that are opening their doors uh, to students that might have gone to community colleges before but are now attending those institutions. And I, I think uh, I'm going to go ahead and predict that, that some of those institutions are not as prepared 
uh, as community colleges are to uh, support those students to to success. And I think um, to open the door and not provide the support that community colleges know how to do and can have historically been able to provide, uh, I think um, it's um, an unfortunate um, next couple of years that uh, I think the success rates of some of those students at those four-year institutions um, might not be as good as they would have been uh, in the community colleges. But um, that's that's my prediction. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Well, um, I, I, Tara, I, um, I had the unbelievable good fortune of teaching at Greenfield Community College while Bob was our president for 17 years. Um, I, I knew it was going to be a good gig because I always wanted to teach and because I knew my subject matter, you know, government and law pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. What I wasn't prepared for was the quality of the education by my colleagues and, and students, some of them were dual enrollment students from high schools and some were mm -hmm. uh, looking at the kind of vocational training that you talked about for EMTs and nurses. Um, some were just looking for adult education. A lot were looking to transfer for four-year college. And what I found was how nimble the community college educational experience was and how fulfilling it was for our students. I, I loved going to graduation and people were chasing their dreams. and. That must be part of your motivation, also at UMass Boston, um, oh, isn't it? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. And we do find that in our book as well, that um, some of the faculty and staff that we talk to, they could be teaching anywhere, they could be working anywhere, but they chose the community college um, because of what you just described. And community colleges, more than anybody, because... Um, of the diversity, not just in students, but in terms of needs of the students and needs in the community. Uh, they, they're the most responsive and have to be the most responsive um, institutions of higher education. But if you care the about the oh, go ahead, Bob. One of the things that I respect about you uh, when you are teaching uh, that is um, apparent throughout GCC and community colleges across the country is um, as uh, brilliant an attorney as you are um, and as um, um, knowledgeable about um, political science and the law, you, you love students and teaching just a tad more. And the same is true of the artists and the mathematicians and the, the, the biologists, uh, um, the, the nurses. Uh, they're there because they they are committed to those students just a tad more than they are to their to their content field to their subject matter to uh, that is they're they're there um, uh, as teachers committed to transformate the transformation of students and providing opportunity and the support for those students and I. I I've always been so respectful of you and your colleagues around the country, the faculty and the staff uh, who are in the offices and the classrooms around the country in those uh, community colleges are uh, just passionately committed to the open door uh, admission policy and to the success of each of those individual students. 
Well, I, I appreciate you tying me in with that illustrious group of uh, educators around the country, but uh, I know that it was for me an honor and a privilege. And every time I was in the classroom, there was never, there was never a week where I didn't learn something from my students. And, and often it was about the process of learning. And, um, you know, being up in years, um, remem remembering how to continue learning, a really important thing. The book is The Community's College, The Pursuit of Democracy, Economic Development, and Success. If you care about your country, if you care about democracy, if you care about economic development, if you care about us all being successful, it's a book worth reading. It's Bob Pura and it's Tara Parker. And on Sunday at 2 o'clock, at the parlor room in say it again two o'clock yes correct okay um and it's sponsored by the international language institute uh an, an agency which we all love which also is committed to education bob and tara thank you so much for joining us today thank you buzz thank you buzz we are going to be back we're going to talk about this um, I got to be honest, it's a dreadful case. This independent state legislature theory was before the Supreme Court. Um, we all should be biting our nails. Uh, we're not going to get a ruling until probably the end of June, but uh, it's a theory with huge consequences on the very democracy we've been talking about. We'll be back right after these messages. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. The House passed legislation yesterday that would enshrine federal protections for marriages of same-sex and interracial couples. Congressman Jim McGovern says this is a good first step, but more work needs to be done. This is a major victory and a major step forward. I'm, I'm proud that we're doing this. That, that doesn't mean that we can just kind of sit back and rest. I mean, this is a terrible Supreme Court. And we have some terrible people in Congress um, who are hell-bent on trying to take away people's rights. The bill now heads to President Biden, who praised Congress for passing it and is expected to sign it into law. The Northampton School Committee is looking for members of the community to help find a new superintendent. The preliminary committee would review input from the community, develop a screening rubric, and hold preliminary interviews, according to the Gazette. The school committee would then make the final decision in the hiring process. The district has been without a permanent superintendent since last summer, after former Superintendent John Provost left. Members of the community interested in the position should send a letter or email to Annie Thompson, the school committee clerk. And Chicopee City officials held a news conference today to address accidents as a result of reckless driving in the city. This comes after Chicopee police were called to Meadow Street due to a motor vehicle crash involving a bicyclist yesterday morning. According to Chicopee police, the man was treated at the scene but later died at the hospital. According to data from MassDOT, there have been close to 1,600 accidents in Chicopee this year, and 10 of those have been deadly. Plenty of sunshine this afternoon with highs in the mid to upper 40s. Clear tonight, evening temperatures in the 30s, an overnight low of 14 to 20. Sun cloud mix tomorrow, 36 to 40, mostly cloudy on Sunday with a chance of some snow late Sunday afternoon or Sunday night.
I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. Hey, it's Jason with the Weather Channel and SnowCountry.com. One of the best savings rates in America is another reason banking with Capital One is the easiest decision. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One NA, member FDIC. Well, we're beginning a streak of cool, dry days and cold snowmaking nights so ski areas can get back on track, run hundreds of snow guns, and deliver more trails and better skiing this weekend and beyond. Adwood Chusett, about a half dozen runs heading into the weekend, skiing till 7 every night. Stratton's got 20 with top-to-bottom action. They've been grooming all those runs every night of the week. Killington skiing almost 30 trails. You got a half dozen at Smuggler's Notch heading into the weekend. So does Brenton Woods. Jiminy Peak reopening on Saturday along with Burke. Mountain, Waterville Valley kicking their season off on the 10th. Hey, this report brought to you by Smugglers Notch Vermont, America's family resort where family funds guaranteed. Visit smugs.com and check out more at snowcountry.com. I'm Jason Dean. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn. Literacy Project is the place for you. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. And welcome back. We're talking about democracy. And remember from fourth grade, uh, demo is the people and Krasia is the power. And uh, it's the power of the people to actually determine things and Notwithstanding the lining of our 45th president, um, you know, we, we, we need to see democracy survive. Elections have to be respected. And elections are uh, particularly with respect to the House of Representatives, that is the 436 people that um, form the House. They are... Um, elected to represent a district and as we know there's this thing called gerrymandering which was specifically designed to draw districts in a way that is favorable to one candidate or another candidate or one ideology versus another one and it usually in most states boils down to uh, an attempt to uh, silence the voices of minorities and poor people um, to the benefit of um, people who are asceted and usually Caucasian. Um, now, the problem has been addressed a little bit, and the way that it was addressed a little bit was back in 2000, I think, they there were, uh, instead of Congress, that is state legislature, excuse me, not Congress, 
instead of state legislatures drawing those districts, they found that um, they could create redistricting commissions. And we now have, I believe, 11 states um, that actually have created a commission in order to draw those districts so that it can't be a, it's less likely to be a self-perpetuating state legislature. In fact, I think, yeah, six of those states, Arizona, Arkansas, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, they created commissions, but they put politicians in the commissions, and thereby basically uh, uh, violating the very principle which they're trying to uphold. Um, for anybody who's interested, there's a wonderful Atlantic article from back a few months ago, I'm going to say in October, but it, it was it's by Michael Ludic, who has gotten, he's a judge that we've heard about um, in so many respects with respect to the claims of Donald Trump that the election was stolen. And he has written and appeared in so many different media um, saying that's not true. Well, he wrote, there is absolutely nothing to support the independent state legislature theory. And goes on to say such a doctrine would be antithetical to the framers intent and to the text, the fundamental design and the architecture of the Constitution. I now see that it was written on October 3rd, it might have been published October 18th in the Atlantic. It's readily available uh, on your browser. So there's this move afoot to try to take it out of the hands of, I'm going to say, corrupt. I'm sorry, corrupt politicians who really want to weaken the vote of people that they disagree with. Um, and they're not always Republicans. They usually are. At the times they've been Democrats as well. Um, here in Massachusetts, I know that now Senator Paul Mark chaired our redistricting um, uh, committee in our legislature, and he promised and I think successfully did create more rational districts um, in order to confront the partisan nature of districting process. Well, so in North Carolina, this is what the legislature did. It, uh, it said that this independent state legislature could not be, because of the state, uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, could not be reviewed in, with respect to districting by the U.S. Supreme Court. The independent state legislature theory says, well, state courts can't review it either. And in North Carolina, these ridiculous districts were drawn. The North Carolina Supreme Court said, no, 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 those are ridiculous. Those disenfranchised people, they are anti-democratic. And that's what's before the court in Wednesday's hearing. There have been so many amicus briefs, um, I think 48 amicus briefs from everything from the Anti-Defamation League to the NAACP, just brief after brief after brief arguing that if the court, you know what an amicus brief is, it's a friend of the court brief that um, states an opinion with respect to something before the court, a matter before the court. And in this particular case, um, they argued that for the most part, most of these briefs, that it would destroy democracy if the court rules in favor 
of the North Carolina legislature. Um, there have been some of the justices of the Supreme Court have floated sort of indications that they buy the independent state legislature theory, but it's it's baffling. There's literally no support in the Constitution for that. It's when you apply this to the electors clause, the one that was at issue in um, in the 2020 election, when Trump tried to throw out six states votes and turn it over to the Republican legislatures in those six states. He was asking Republican legislatures, legislators to make the decision instead of voters. It is as direct a threat to any notion of democracy um, that we have. Dan, I know that you've been reading about this. Yeah, I actually, let's yeah, take a break, actually, Buzz. And uh, when we come back, I'll ask you some questions. Sounds good. Okay. We'll be right back. Stay with us. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Every Monday on our show is Mayor's Monday, where we interview mayors up and down the valley. On our next Mayor's Monday, we'll be speaking about crucial local and state issues with the mayor of Holyoke, Joshua Garcia. Please join us Monday at 9 o'clock. Get in on the conversation. Bill Newman. Weekdays at 9. And again at 5. WHMP. News, information, and the arts. This week's Shop Tuesday is Galaxy. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Galaxy releases certificates for the restaurant in East Hampton. Dumplings, deviled eggs, and an ever-changing menu of creative plates, large and small. A stylish bar and lounge, a dining room with boots of white leatherette. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Galaxy in East Hampton, available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. In this the season of thanks and giving, United Way of Franklin and Hampshire Region wants to remind you to support the organizations and people who are doing the hard work of making our community a better place. Please consider supporting a local nonprofit with a tax-deductible gift this December. If you're not sure how to help, go to uw-fh.org to find a list of United Way vetted partner agencies. The United Way of the Franklin and Hampshire Region asks you to help make the Valley a happier, healthier, and more equitable place for everyone. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMP. Grab your coat and get your hat. And we are back, and Dan and I were just talking as we, we went into break, and, and Dan, you had a question or a comment. Yeah. Buzz, I'm a little confused. <laughs> I'm sorry, Buzz. Do you hear me? I'm a little confused about yeah. this case um, of, of the Supreme Court about the state legislature doctrine. So if I'm understanding it correctly, I, I understood that the state uh, legislatures could, in theory, 
decide to override the will of their voters, let's say in a presidential election, and allocate the electoral college votes to any candidate they want. So in a future presidential election, North Carolina could say, we're going to reject the election that favored the Democratic nominee, and we are going to allocate our electoral votes for the Republican. I thought that that's what the state legislature doctrine would allow, but you're telling me it's even bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Here, here's the bottom line. The contention is that since federal elections mm-hmm. are only reviewable by states, mm-hmm. the state legislature theory says that state courts have no jurisdiction over the state legislature, the, the mm-hmm. quote-unquote duly elected state legislature in matters involving federal elections. So electors, um, redistricting, all of it mm. is something that's non-reviewable is what they're arguing. Okay. So, so basically it's giving the full control to the state legislatures and taking it away from judicial review within the state. Am I understand that correctly? You are, okay. you know, it, it all comes from, from article one, I think it's section four. It says, this is the time, places, and manner of holding elect- elections for senators and representatives that's prescribed in each state by the legislature. Um, that, that's what it says. Um, it's the primary source of constitutional authority to regulate elections for the House and for the Senate. Obviously, the census plays an important role in it. Right. But it is all about, this case is all about questioning whether or not state legislators, legislatures are reviewable or are they just, they have absolute power, plenary power, as we call it. Um, I, I mean, that's a that, mockery. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a mockery to the entire voting process. I mean, that's, uh, that would eliminate any uh, reason to vote in many ways, because essentially that's going to, your state legislatures would get to be the dictator and the decider of all things, reviewing the state and, and no review. So, I mean, that's, 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 to me, that is so troubling to be at that state that we're even arguing about something like this. You know, if you don't like the way your state is voting in presidential elections or normal elections, get on the ground and go win voters. I mean, that is the point of voting in elections. Well, you nailed it there. I can't say it any better than that. But, you know, the entire system, what we like to think of when we attribute the kind of wisdom to the framers of the Constitution that we generally do, even in fourth grade, when we took civics class, we learned about checks and balances. And this is a completely unchecked and imbalanced power that the North Carolina legislature and many other Republican legislatures are seeking. They do not want a court to be able to say what you've done is unfair. They don't want, if they decide on a different set of electors that will, you know, choose their candidate over the ones which the voters chose, they can just do it if, if that's what happens in this case. But according to observers, I, it's very hard to tell, but the, I always look at SCOTUS, the Supreme Court of the United States, SCOTUS blog, and you can too. You just look in your bro- browser and you can mm-hmm. see it. And there they, they seem to be saying that John Roberts voiced skepticism 
uh, about that kind of broad, unchecked power that the legislature was was uh, asserting there. Um, you know, but we're, we're really worried. There's no question Alito is going to vote for the state legislature. And there's no question that Clarence, um, Thomas. That Clarence Thomas is as well. Um, but Gorsuch, we're not quite sure. Um, according to, to the SCOTUS blog, mm -hmm. it seems, based on the questions, which are never dispositive of exactly where they are, uh, it's, it's kind of hopeful, but we should all be biting our fingernails between now and June. Wow. It's a very scary case. It is. Agreed. Well, Dan, um, thanks for putting up with me virtually, and thanks for covering for me yesterday. Anytime, and buddy. I hope everybody has a good virus-free week. Take care and of yourself. I will. Okay, everybody, have a great weekend. Bye-bye. This is the Afternoon Buzz with Buzz Eisenberg, 101.5 WHMT. Do you know what's going on in business in Western Mass? You do if you read Business West. Find out which companies are growing, which companies are innovating. Learn about people on the move, people taking the lead. Every issue of Business West is packed with business news, including incorporations, building permits, real estate transactions, and bankruptcies. Pick up a copy or read Business West online. The vital business news is in Business West, the business journal of Western Mass. Northampton Neighbors is free of charge and open to all with a range of social and volunteer opportunities as well as services and support for members 55 and older in the city of Northampton. Need help? Want to help? Join us as a member, a volunteer, or donor. Northampton Neighbors is about Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, Northampton Radio Group Station.